Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, we read, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also those who walk in the steps of the faith which our father had while still uncircumcised. Human beings are hopelessly religious. I grew up in a religious tradition that was marked by rituals and rites and rules. And you might read this particular passage of scripture and you might be thinking, this is a whole lot of mention of circumcision. And so if you don't even understand what the meaning is or the context is, you're going to be lost right from the start. In the Old Testament, Abraham was given a sign, if you will, and a seal concerning his walk of faith. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Abraham, the story begins in the book of Genesis of a man who in, receives a vision, if you will, and a calling from God. And in that vision and calling from God and a promise that's given to him, he decides that he's going to leave one way of life and he's going to enter into another way of life. Some of you are familiar with that because you've experienced it yourself. Abram was a pagan and God was going to call him to be a a worshiper of the one true God. Abram was a person who didn't have a real relationship with God until God called him into that relationship and gave him a promise that the world was going to be different as a result of him following God. So by faith, he's going to leave one way of life and he's going to enter into another way of life. Paul grew up in a religious world of imagined self-goodness and religious ritual. Paul will now speak to those people who are depending on their own righteousness apart from the gospel, apart from Christ. What do we say to those who lean on Jesus but they do not wholly lean on Jesus? Paul's testimony before coming to Christ was in Galatians chapter 1 verse 14... I profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation. Paul had made an argument that God's plan of salvation was rooted in the Bible's revelation about God. God's 
plan conformed to the standards of the law in chapter 3, verse 21. Statements of the prophets in chapter 3, verse 21. The plan of God is righteous, chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. God's plan is reasonable in verse chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Reasonable in that it eliminates human pride, human prejudice, and human presumption. Rites, rituals have both good and bad elements, and the value of religious rites and religious rituals include the elements of reflection and meditation and remembrance. But the danger of religious rites and rituals and rules are that some people use them as a substitute for faith in Christ alone. How does a person become acceptable to God? By what? By faith and by trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. Can a person become acceptable to God by a religious rite or a religious ritual? Paul's answer is no. For the very person who believes that religious rites or rituals or rules serve as the vehicle for acceptance by God or justification by God, they're very sadly mistaken. So what did you think about when you read those few verses? Why in the world is Gino spending so much time on this passage? What does it even mean? Why should I even care? Let me answer those questions by stating a very simple premise. Religion and ritual are the wrong ways. For men and women to seek acceptance and forgiveness and justification by God and from God. Well then who can receive the blessing and the benefits of forgiveness? Why the person who's counted righteous, without works, justified apart from ordinances and apart from the law, whose sins are forgiven and covered, whose sins are not counted against the sinner. But remember, remember, Paul has grown up in a religious tradition. And the religious tradition identified people in terms of those who were circumcised and those who were not. Those who identified with God through Abraham. And many people who have grown up in a religious tradition who experience salvation by grace through faith are still attracted to religion, to rites and rituals. I'm almost certain that no one is going to understand the story that I'm about to give. And so why give the story, but I'm going to. It's certainly, almost certainly apocryphal. There was a person named Scott Hahn. Some of you are familiar with him. He's a, a Catholic apologist. Apparently, he was visiting Rome and he obtained a private audience with the Pope. And after they had an appropriate time alone, the papal assistant re, rejoined the Pope and Scott Hahn to bring the interview to an end. And he found the Pope sort of trapped in a corner pleading, Please, please, Mr. Hahn, Mr. Hahn I am already Catholic. You may not understand it, but he was a Protestant who became a Catholic and who became a sort of one-man champion of people returning to Rome. And it never ceases to amaze me how many people who grow up in a church tradition that's marked by grace 
want to return to ritual and religion. The person who constantly asks the question, which religion is the right religion, perhaps needs to pause and ask a different question. And I want to be sensitive to that question. My father, after my grandfather died, when we were driving away from my grandfather's funeral, turned to me and said to me, Chino, what religion is the right religion? And I couldn't very well say to my father, that's the wrong question, Dad. But I did say, Dad, why are you asking that question? Your question implies that there is such a thing as religion. Your question implies that religion does something. It provides something. It deals with something. And what is it supposed to provide? And what is it supposed to deal with? You see, the person who denies the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness of sin will rarely ask the question, not so much what is the right religion, but how do I have a right relationship with God? How do I stand before God? How can I be accepted before God? And most people who ask the question about religion are asking really a much deeper question and a much more profound question. How do I have a right relationship with God? How do I stand before God accepted and forgiven? And the religions of this world say do and live, but the religion of the Bible says live and do. The religion of the Bible says in order for you to experience forgiveness and acceptance for the dark, empty place to go away that's been inside of you is to walk with Christ. And so Paul, growing up in a religious tradition of rite and ritual, basically asks the question, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? When he's talking about circumcised and uncircumcised, he's not just simply talking about the Jewish rite of seal. He is talking in generic terms of Jews and Gentiles because by this particular time, Jews refer to themselves as the circumcised, and the non-Jew or the Gentile as the uncircumcised. Earlier, Paul argues that Abraham's faith was apart from works. David's faith was apart from obedience, or we might even say disobedience, to the law. Did David obey the law? No, he broke the law. Now Paul will demonstrate that justification did not come to Abraham by faith plus circumcision in verses 9 through 12. Justification was not by faith plus keeping the law. We're going to see that in verses 13 through 17. That justification doesn't take place by any other means other than by faith alone in verses 18 through 25. So when Paul refers to this blessedness, what does that blessedness mean? He's making reference to the blessed man earlier in verses 6 through 8 when we read, when when David wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. The blessed is the blessed human being. The immediate context is David who is forgiven of his sin. But it means way more. 
It means every man and every woman who's justified by faith alone whose sins are covered, whose sins are not counted against them. Salvation is given freely in verse 6, and then sin is banished forever in verses 7 through 8. So who is the person who's blessed? The person who's blessed is the person who can look up and say, I am so grateful to God that my heart is cleansed and my sins are forgiven and that I'm accepted by God on the basis of having a right relationship through Christ. And so Paul asks, does this blessedness extend only to the Jew? Or could it possibly include the Gentile? Is the blessing of forgiveness or being justified by faith alone for a privileged few? Or is it available to everyone In every generation, why even ask the question? Well, because bigotry comes from many sources. Paul knew that there were those who would argue that God's blessing of justification was limited to Abraham's natural descendants and the blessing could only be received by joining a particular group or experiencing a particular religious rite. You have to belong to a particular church and you have to experience a particular religious rite. Paul will answer the objection and use Abraham's experience as an illustration for everyone. And so at the end of verse 9 he says, For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Paul is literally quoting from the book of Genesis chapter 15 verse 16 which reads, Avram or Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him or placed into his account or deposited in Abraham's account righteousness. And remember, what does righteousness mean in this particular instance? It means a right standing before God. It means being accepted by God. And so circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that was given in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 14. And so the the, the apostle Paul had a constant struggle with the Jewish Christian who believed that salvation was impossible apart from the administration and the practice of circumcision. If you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 29. Read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. The big controversy in the first early church was, does a, Christ, does a, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian? And so, the argument raged. Until the religious leaders, the, the apostles, the brother of Jesus, James, and the others made the declaration in Acts chapter 15. I'm just going to give you the, the shortened version of it. But they basically said, look, they wrote this letter. The apostles, the elders, the brethren, this is in verse 23, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles, Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, 
Greetings, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such command. Now this is important. Because there were a group of people who said, you must be circumcised and you must keep the law in order to have a right relationship with God. And so they're writing, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of Jesus. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same thing with word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you No greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. In other words, do you have to become a Jew and exercise all of the responsibilities of an observant Jew in order to have a right relationship with God? The answer is no and oh. Paul's argument here does permanent damage to every single person who embraces a works-based righteousness which says, hey, in order to have a right relationship with God, here's what you got to do. you got to love Jesus. Well, so far, so good. You have to trust Jesus. So far, so good. You have to repent of your sins. So far, so good. You have to embrace him and love him and walk with him. So far, so good. And then you have to come to my church and you have to read my books and you have to go door to door and you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this and you have to do that. And once you've done all of those things, then you're accepted by God and the Bible makes no such provision. Matthew Arnold wrote, Christ came to reveal what righteousness really is. For nothing will do except righteousness, and no other conception of righteousness will do except Christ's conception of it, his method, and his secret, unquote. And if you read in the New Testament when the religious leaders ask, well, what must we do in order to do the works of God? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you must believe in the one that the Father has sent. He was talking about himself. And what he does, what Paul does in his argument is remarkable. Look at the very next verse in verse 10. Abraham counted righteous before the ritual of circumcision. What does it say? How then was it accounted? In other words, what's being accounted? Justification and righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? For the The Roman who's reading this, who's unfamiliar with Jews and Judaism, he answers the question, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Abraham received and observed the rite of circumcision. When did that happen? Again, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible and who have read the Old Testament, it doesn't take place... In Genesis 15, and it doesn't take place in Genesis 16, it takes place in Genesis chapter 17, verse 11. Abraham carefully did what God asked him to do. But we have to be careful not to substitute the shadow for the substance or magnify the symbol over the actual. 
Roy Lauren comments, quote, while it is true that Abraham fulfilled all the conditions of the right, it is equally true that the right did not bring Abraham justification. And so this is Paul's remarkable argument. Was Abraham accepted by God because God asked him to perform the ritual sign that was going to separate him from the rest of the pagans? Here's what Paul argues. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? The justification of Abraham took place some 14 years earlier, before the rite was ever performed. And if you want to look for yourself, you can see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis chapter then 17, verse 10. There are some scholars who believe that the period of time between Romans, excuse me, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, it's as, as, as few as 14 years, as long as 29 years. Now, why is all of that so very interesting? Because Paul is a careful reader of the book of Genesis. MacDonald writes, quote, Paul seizes on a historical fact that most of us might have overlooked, unquote. What is that? Paul, in effect, brings up a question. If Abraham could be justified by faith apart from circumcision, why can't other people be justified by faith apart from Religious observances. You mean God could love me and justify me if I never darkened the door of a church? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I want you to go to church. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. But going to church isn't what makes you a Christian. Reading your Bible every day doesn't make you a Christian. Some of you might be thinking, now that I'm safe, I've got to be baptized. God wants me to be baptized. And I think it's important for you to be baptized. But for you who grew up in a religious tradition where it is the ritual itself that somehow creates a rightness with God, you're sorely mistaken. What Paul is arguing is for the Roman who is wondering, can I be accepted by God apart from religious ritual? So in effect, again, Abraham is, he's basically saying, look, if Abraham could be justified by faith apart from circumcision, you can be justified by faith. Apart from circumcision. I need you to understand where Paul is going with this. Avram is born in the Middle East. Avram is a pagan. Avram's father worshipped idols. Avram was a person who was a wicked pagan idol worshipper. Until one day God showed up. And God made a promise to him. And said... If you'll walk with me, if you'll turn from the life that you have and you go in a different direction, and if you'll go to the place that I'm going to point out to you, I'm going to provide you with something. I'm going to provide you with a way that you can experience peace and joy. I'm going to provide a way for you to know that you are 
chosen by me. I'm going to provide a way for you to experience guilt-free living. I'm going to provide a way for you to walk with me in humility and submission. If the right had something to do with the justification, why didn't it take place immediately? Why does it have to wait for, in some cases, 14 years or 29 years? And so, again, I I want you to think about that person who trusts Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And they go, well, you know, I trusted Jesus, but I never was baptized, or I never partook of communion or the Lord's Supper. The baptism and the Lord's Supper become instruments, if you will, ordinances that speak of a change that has already taken place inside of your heart. And so look at Paul's argument. Abraham received circumcision as a sign or a symbol. In verse 11 it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. Paul argues that he received the sign of circumcision After being justified by faith, why? That he might be the father of all those who believe. What? Who believe God's promises by faith. Here Paul pleads and argues that the uncircumcised Gentile can be justified the same way that Abraham was justified. By faith. By simply believing What God says is true. Now remember what Abraham actually believed. The real God of the real universe shows up and gave him a promise. Do you realize that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the real God of the universe has shown up and given you a promise? Remember what Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and heavily laden. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. And so in this particular sense, how is Abraham the father, not by birth, but by belief? We are his children because we imitate his faith. What was his faith? Leaving one world and going into another. Hearing God's promise and then acting on God's promise. And then walking in that promise. And so the passage isn't teaching that Gentiles become Israel or Israel becomes Gentiles. The Israel of God are those Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Paul refers to Abraham's receiving of circumcision as a sign, as a seal of righteousness of faith. And and I want you to note something. Paul makes special emphasis of the fact that this righteousness of faith was already in Abraham's possession circumcision didn't bring the righteousness. Rather, it served as a sign and a seal of the righteousness. Paul doesn't want to leave the reader with the impression, well, what good is it? 
I mean, it seems, is this a big, fat, stinking waste of time? Was the rite an empty, meaningless, pointless, fruitless religious expression? That's not the point that he's making. Any more than in making the point in the New Testament. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm ever baptized. It doesn't matter if I ever, ever have communion or if I ever embrace or enjoy the Lord's Supper. That's not the point that he's making. It's not a meaningless, pointless, fruitless religious expression. Roy Lauren writes again, The sign was a testimony and the seal a ratification. The benefit was in the obedience. The purpose of a seal is to give the mark of genuineness to a document. There's no value in a seal apart from the thing that it authenticates. Let me give you an example. Many of you know that I collect coins. And sometimes I send my coin off to what's called the professional coin grading system. In other words, what it does is it just simply authenticates that a coin is real. Now imagine if you have coins like me that are thousands of years old, they fall into two categories, those that are real and those that aren't. And so some of the most thoughtful people who have devoted their lives to determining the real from the fake work at these places, they grade these coins, they give you a certificate of authenticity. If you collect coins, if you collect stamps, if you collect artifacts. People who collect these kinds of things want to know, are they real, are they genuine, or are they fake? And so Paul argues that the giving of this right was not so much in order to make him accepted, but proof possible or proof positive that he was affected. Accepted. Think about what's happening to the religious Jew in the first century. The seal was being magnified above the thing that it authenticated. Hence our passage. In other words, Jews referred to themselves as circumcised. In other words, they appealed to the seal as the proof of their identity, and the uncircumcised was used as designators to describe the people who were unsealed. Do we do that in our culture and society? We do. Now, if baptism is a seal, in part, you, you couldn't imagine anyone calling themselves Baptist, right? Oh, wait, people do. So they're Baptists. And there are, what's the opposite of a Baptist? Non-Baptist. Now again, I'm not here to make fun of Baptists. Because the truth is that the designator could apply to anyone or anything. We may not use the term Baptist or Methodist, or Congregationalist, or Catholic, or Protestant, whatever designator you want to use, whatever thing that you want to fit in. Imagine that, we, that there was some name that you could use to describe people who had and hadn't partaken of the Lord's Supper. This is the point that Paul is making. The point that he is making is that For the person who elevates the right or the sign above the acceptance itself, they're missing the point. So in our culture and society, what does a sign do? A sign provides information, instruction, warning, 
Every single one of you who drove to church this, this morning, if you did drive, you came across a red light or a green light, a stop sign. And it told you where to go and what to do. So what's the meaning or the purpose of the sign of circumcision? In the religious culture of the first century Jew, it was a sign of celebration. It was a sign of witness. It was the sign of a changed life. It was the sign of a separated life. It was the sign of identification. The believer was declaring that he was joining and he was becoming one of God's people. And so the same is true today. So in what sense is circumcision a seal? Again, it's a seal that stamped God's justification upon Abraham's mind. And remember, Abraham was circumcised at what age? Who knows? That's right. And again, this is a family church, so I'm not going to go into details. But if you get circumcised at the age of 99 without anesthetic... Painful or not painful? Take a guess. You don't even have to be a believer to guess this one. (laughs) I want you to think about this just for a moment. Do you think it's safe to say that it would be painful? Give me a yes or no. Memorable. Yes or no. Painful. Memorable. Painful. Memorable. For what? For Abraham, circumcision was a stamp on his body to remind Abraham that God counted him righteous through faith and belief. So, what happens when you're baptized? I'm hoping that it's memorable. Hopefully, it doesn't have to be painful unless I keep you down a really long time. But here's the point. Circumcision was a seal, a confirmation, a validation, authentication. Does the Bible say that the rite or the ritual or the ordinance bestows anything else? The answer is no. Is there something magical or supernatural that the ordinances add In relationship to acceptance before God, the answer is no. You are accepted by God on the basis of what you've done with the person of Jesus Christ. They are signs of something that has already taken place. They're merely shadows. The substance is Christ. It says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17. So then how should we think about signs and symbols and religious rites and rituals? Do they have any value? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. They are signs and seals of the believer's faith. We're called to embrace and celebrate the ordinance of the believer's baptism and and the Lord's Supper. And again, if it is valuable in the sense that it causes us to and reminds us of who we are in Christ. So we don't experience a mark on our body, but rather it's a different kind of mark. We receive this mark the moment of justification when by faith we accept both the message and the meaning of the message of the gospel. 
That means you hear the gospel, you hear about Jesus, you hear about his love, you hear about his sacrifice for your sin, you hear about the resurrection from the dead, you understand that he's alive and that he can change you from the inside out. And you're saved because you believe it. But you see, we're given a seal that's different from the seal that was given in the Old Testament. You see, someone might argue, well, is the seal in the New Testament baptism? And I'm going to suggest to you, no. We are given a seal when we believe, and that seal and declaration and transaction that determines the validity and the legality of what it means to have a right relationship with God isn't something as simple as baptism, but rather it's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or the pledge or the down payment of our inheritance or guarantee the redemption of the purchased possession. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. So Paul will argue every single Christian, every single Christian who comes to know Jesus, who who by faith and grace and mercy receive Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of them. Now I want you to think about this. The seal in the Old Testament was made by a human and applied to a human. But only males. There's no mention of females receiving circumcision. But in the New Testament, the seal is given to both men and women. It is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of the believer. Now, this is the difference. One is made by humans and given to humans. One is made by God and only God. Only God can give you the seal of redemption. It's only God himself who can provide the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. All true, born-again, blood-bought, Holy Spirit-filled Christians have this seal inside of them. This is why Paul can argue in the book of Romans that the Spirit is inside of you bearing witness with, with the Holy Spirit when you're crying out, Abba. For the person who says, how can I know that I'm really a Christian? I say to them, how can you know if you really have a driver's license? Pull it out. Check your wallet or your purse. You have one or you don't. You have the Holy Spirit or you don't. And when you have the Holy Spirit, you know it. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that comes over you. It is the assurance that God keeps his promises and that his promises are true. And that when Jesus said, I'll come and I'll be with you and I'll live inside of you. The purpose, in part, was to serve the recipient with the knowledge that he or she had truly been regenerated and justified and accepted. And it brings certainty and security. We're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, the moment of faith in the promise of God. So, again, what was the Old Testament seal? Circumcision, made with human hands. What is the New Testament seal? The presence of the Holy Spirit. Not made with human hands. It's a divine work. 
I know it seems impossible. I know that with the advent of modern surgical procedures, you can reduce some surgical procedures. Good idea or bad idea to reverse circumcision? I don't know. I'm not even going to go there. But the truth is, the only person who can break the seal is the person who gives the seal in the New Testament. Only God could break a seal of his own making. Paul argue, Paul's argument is that Abraham's belief and trust in the promise of God confirmed his justification, although it did not confer justification. So what does all this have to do with you and me? This is what it has to do with you. All human beings are in need of a personal rightness before God. And this personal rightness before God comes from a right relationship with God in Christ. So what do we say to the person who says, I reject your premise. I'm a human being and I don't think I have a need to, be, to have a right relationship with God. There is no such thing as God. There's no such thing as a personal rightness. Well, again, remember what we've already read in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. What do we say to the person who says, I don't need your God, and I don't need your Jesus, and I don't need your salvation? My advice is consult your conscience. Take a good look at the world in which you live. How long will you continue in the charade that there's no such thing as God? How long will you continue in the charade that sin isn't real and damaging? How long will you ignore the history of humanity on the planet Earth? How long will you ignore the tugging of your own conscience? Ask your conscience if you need a savior. What do you suppose your conscience is going to say? Do the right thing. Do what's right. Do the right thing. Do what's right. Ask human history if you need a savior. Ask the testimony of the scripture if you need a savior. And now, ask the savior if you need a savior. What do you suppose Jesus will say? Paul makes it clear that human beings are incapable of presenting a personal righteousness of their own making. And so in verse 12, look what it says. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that's Jewish people, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So what does the father of the circumcision have to say to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised? The father of circumcision and the uncircumcised says, we walk in the steps of faith. Read it for yourself. But who also walk in the steps of faith? What are the steps of faith? The steps of faith are the person who's heard from God, the person who is willing to believe the promise of God, the person who's willing to walk away from one kind of life and then walk into another life. For those of you who are single and then who got married, 
Did you walk away from one kind of life into another life? Yeah. For those of you who joined the military, is it different being a civilian than it is being in the service? You walk away from one kind of life and you walk into another life. Christian, isn't it different being raised in the kingdom of darkness and then walking into light? Being raised in sin and then experiencing forgiveness? That's the walk that he's talking about. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, the proud descendants of Abraham's gene pool? He said, I know that you're Abraham's descendants in John chapter 8, verse 37. But then he went on to say, but if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did in John 8, 39. Paul insists that physical circumcision isn't what counts. There must be faith in the living God. Those of the circumcision who believe in the Lord Jesus are the true Israel of God. And so what is Paul's argument concerning the circumcision? If it does not confirm righteousness, it merely confirms righteousness. Paul gives two reasons for the right to Abraham. Number one, that he would be the spiritual father of all who since that time, despite their uncircumcision, show faith and it's counted for righteousness and that he, Abraham, might be the circumcised father of all those who are not circumcised. In what sense? Is it different being a descendant of Abraham and being a child of Abraham? A descendant of Abraham means that you share the genetic signature of Abraham or Isaac, or Jacob, or one of his children. Paul turns the Jewish argument on its head. It's not the Gentiles who must come to circumcision for salvation. It's the Jews who have to come to Christ for salvation. What does that mean to you? What if the person says to you, I'm religious. I have my own religion. I have my own religion, I go to my own church, I do my own religious thing. Paul turns the argument on on its head and he says, it's not religion that you need. It's relationship. How many people have been saved by religion? None. How many people have been saved by relationship with Christ? The Bible says everyone who will come to him, that he will in no wise cast them out. So Paul seizes the fact like a dog with a bone and he concludes that both believing Jews and believing Gentiles can claim Abraham as their father and identify with him as your children if you're willing to do what Abraham did. And that's to trust God by faith and walk with God by faith. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, knew the dangers of profession without faith or possession of, of, of without faith. He also knew about the dangers of religion without relationship. He wrote, I consider the chief dangers which will confront the 20th century will be this, religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without regeneration, morality without God. And heaven without hell. People want religion. 
but they don't want a living Holy Spirit inside of them. Some people want Christianity, but it's a Christianity absent Christ and absent the cross. And they want forgiveness, but they don't want to change. They want morality, but it's a sterile morality without God. And everybody wants to go to heaven. But for the person who doesn't really believe that there's a hell, that there's a sin, that is a difficulty, that there is a problem, that there is a deep burning problem inside of every human heart. And that's what I told my father so long ago. The right question isn't what's the right religion. The right question is, how can I have a right heart with God? And the way that 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 happens, you turn from your sin. You turn to the Savior. You confess your need. And he promises to meet that need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. Lord, every person within the sound of my voice, I know, has at least one person in their life. And that person's trusting religion. They're trusting rituals. They retreat into the rules. But deep down inside, there's a dark place, an empty place a broken place, and a guilty place that can only be fixed by Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that as men and women, we could be like our father Abraham, who listened and believed the promise and who walked away from one kind of a life And then who walked into another kind of a life. One with light. One with love. One with forgiveness. One with friendship and relationship with God that would last forever. And so, Father, again, I pray for that man or that woman who has never taken that step. Lord, I pray that that's exactly what they would do. In the quietness of their heart, they would pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to turn from my sin. Turn to Jesus. Experience forgiveness, hope, and life. I want to walk away from the kingdom of darkness and walk into the kingdom of light. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.